I want you to imagine this. Car door opens, wallop. You're getting smashed around the head of an iron bar. You're dragged out of there thinking, what's going on here? You're thrown in a motor again in the back of a motor. Put in the back of the car, the door shut, and then and someone kicking me. I get in and I'm bashing you and I'm questioning you and I'm hitting you with this bar and I keep it in you a bit. A lot of punching was done in the back of the car towards this area. And I take you to the countryside. Sort of dragged out the car and basically uh, run over. I reverse back over them, I go back over them. I just remember the pain, I thought the legs, my legs had snapped. I just thought I'm going to punish you and make you remember what you did, and you're going to suffer for it. I went homeless for several months, lived on the streets, got involved with uh, a lot of drink and drugs. I think I was quietly saying goodbye to myself, because I knew I weren't coming out of this. You, did you think you was going to die? Yeah. Will, thank you for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. I fully appreciate this is going to be quite a difficult podcast for you because you and Kev Lehner, you're doing the podcast tour at the moment, promoting restorative justice. And I've seen you on two podcasts already, which is why I reached out to try and put a different angle on it where you and Kev are sat side by side and you're reliving what happened in 1992 when Kev Lane kidnapped and tortured you and the effect it had on your life. I wanted to separate the two of you and go in deeper with you from a, a level with understanding. I've also been kidnapped. Not many people know that. When I was younger, me and a friend of mine were kidnapped. So hopefully when you're telling me what happened, you'll know that I'm with you and I am with you as well. And just so the people at home know, Kev Lane is sat directly behind that camera there. So he's going to listen to this interview with Will and then we're going to speak to Kev afterwards as well. So 1992, Kev Lane kidnapped and tortured you and got convicted for that crime. And then your life spiralled out of control. I know you was Will. So just give me your full name. It's William Galuli. William Galuli. Because I want this podcast to paint you as your, as your own man. Because you are your own man. And you've done extremely well to come back from, from the darkness that you was in. I know how harrowing it is coming back from a, a traumatic experience. PTSD, addiction for comfort. You turn, you gravitate to things that sort of make it worse, but you don't realise at the time. And so what I want to do is, if I may, is before we discuss the kidnap and the torture, which we're going to have to do in quite some detail, to make it as impactful and relatable to people at home as possible, not only for victims, but also for people that are going out, destroying lives with mindless violence, because you was actually the wrong person. But before we get to that, let's find out a bit more about you. Let's find out who, who, who Will is, because you're not just a torture victim. You're your own man. You've lived a life. You're a strong character, obviously, because you're sat here now. And I fully appreciate and respect that before we go any further. I tip my hat to you for being here. And I tip my hat to Kev for what he's just about to listen to, because it may be, may be different when you're sat here by yourself. So 
Where did you grow up? Uh, I was uh, born and bred in Corby, Northamptonshire. Uh, went to school there all my life. Um, sort of like a bit of problems at school with bullies, you know, because I had ginger hair, freckles, natural health glasses. So when I was at school, I didn't really concentrate as much on the schooling. It was more like take it from the bullies and just try and get out, you know, after school, you know, when I grew up, I left the, the hometown to sort of better myself, you know, because I didn't, I just didn't want to be with the bullies anymore. So I wanted to go somewhere where no one knows me. It could take me for what I look, looked like, ginger hair glasses, national health glasses, freckles, you know, a bit overweight. And that people accepted me. So I started a career within the employment service. Um, was there for a couple of years, but as you gradually, you know, get older, you think, well, I want to better myself. So I started looking for a new job and I applied for the job with the distribution company. And that's when things started. It started off great. The job was, I can't fault the job. It was an absolutely fantastic job. The atmosphere, the, the people I worked with at the time were fantastic because it was a sales atmosphere. So we were singing, dancing in the mornings and, you know, joking around all the time. But then one evening that just all changed dramatically. It was this place of work where you you was accused by someone of stealing, was it £100,000 worth of equipment? Yeah, £100,000. And the information that was given to Kev was also that you'd put a knife to a pregnant woman's stomach. Just the thought of that upsets me. Being accused of something like that. And no, I just couldn't, couldn't fathom it. I just couldn't get my head around, you know. So if you would have saw me years ago, I've not changed very much, I've just got older. My, my height hasn't got different. Weight I've dropped a little bit, but there's no way I would have threatened a pregnant woman or a child with a knife. I had no association with with that at all. He wasn't a violent man. No, not not into any criminality. No, I was a pillhead. I used to go trances. We used to smoke dope uh, in and around like car parks. You know, I, I had my own little gang of friends, and it was a great. You know, I mean, and then. Even when they found out what happened, it was it just baffled them why I was like classed as a football hooligan. It would go around threatening women and kids with knives, especially pregnant women, cut their baby out of their stomach. No, it wasn't me. I'm not going to delve into your into your childhood and and and, and your parents because it's the, it's really the restorative justice that we want to touch base on. But it sounds like you was troubled when you was younger anyway because of the bullying. And you had to battle that off. And I, I've got friends now that were bullied at school and it still does affect them. I'm, I'm 44, so I know that it does have a lasting effect. And so do you think that when you left school and then started the, the, the rave scene, in, you, in your words, of popping pills, was that a way of just escaping all that madness? In a way it was, but it was a social thing to do at the time, you know, like the Friday night, the Saturday night, and then the, sun, the Sunday come down, basically. And that was that's what I lived for, then weekends, basically. Work Monday to Friday, go out Friday night, back to work Monday. What year was that? That was uh, sort of 1990, going up, upwards. So it was just at the tip of the, the, the scene, basically. Everything was starting to come through, you know. And I was loving it. I was just loving life. You know what I mean? I had a good job at the time, then left that job for the, the distribution job. And just everything after, after that, just, you know, I think it was nine months into the job. And that 10th month was just like, 
the whole thing changed. So just remind me, so you still managed to hold down a job in, in amongst raving. Did you have a girlfriend at the time? Not regular one, but later on I did have uh, a, a, a regular girlfriend, but it was just like you were too busy partying, enjoying life basically, loving everyone around you. So, and that's what I was doing. So That was the thing back in the 90s, wasn't it? When that rave scene hit, it went from everyone drinking and fighting to everyone popping pills and loving each other. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's, yeah, when you look at it, like, up to that, 89, everything was football gangs, hooligans everywhere. You yeah. know, and, and then all of a sudden, they, they just changed, literally, from the... Like, running around the street with bottles, chasing each other, to sort of hugging and kissing each other in a nightclub. So what was the actual job that resulted in this kidnapping? Well, I was employed to do like, the administration on the finance and, uh, and arrange the deliveries of the new equipment once they'd been sold. And what, what was the equipment? It was uh, Kirby Hoover's. Right. Yeah, I remember, yeah, Kirby Hoover's back in the day because so, so Kevin was a salesman for, for Kirby, weren't he? Uh, yeah, yeah, for what I found out later on. And... So that connects those dots there then? Because 100 grand's worth of, of equipment got stolen, didn't it? Yeah. And was you aware at the time that it, that it had been stolen? No, totally clueless. Didn't have no idea what was going on. Didn't have a clue. And what, was it the Hoovers that were stolen? Yeah, the Hoovers, yeah. And for some reason, your name was given that it was you. And in the process of stealing this hold-up situation, taking the Hoovers... The person that done it put a knife up to a pregnant woman's stomach and somehow someone managed to put your face and your name to that crime. Have you got any idea how that happened? From what I've gathered later on in life, it, they, everybody thought it was me. It said it must be Will because he's, he's wearing a £50 shirt. Where's he got that money from? Why's Will got money? You know what I mean? At the time, I wasn't called Will, it was Billy. I was called Billy. So I later you know, I mean, I changed that because it's, you know, because of certain things. But yeah, it was just because uh, I was first to buy rounds of drinks at the bar. But if it was before five of us, I would work it out. By the time it got to him, that's it. We're all finished. We're all ready for to go home that night. So that's why people used to sort of think, well, where's he getting his money from? Where's he getting? I was just like, as any other person, I just looked after my money and I bought, I bought the fifty pound shirt. It cost £5 out of cancer research or a charity shop or a pair of jeans from a charity shop. But, you know, as you do, yeah, brand new Levi's, 45 quid, you know. Because when you look at 92, 45 quid was like having 450 quid in your back pocket. Mm. So, And again, like a £50 shirt, it's like a £500 shirt. And people just think, he's all smartly dressed. And, you know, and it must be him. He's got to have the money. It must be him. No, it was If you'd have seen where I was living and... Uh, what I had at the time, I had nothing because I'd literally sort of like just lived in like shared accommodation. I was just living out of bag. I didn't have no furniture, you know, and people just, you know, it was like a converted garage. And I'd imagine that you were in, as you got older, you, appear, you, you took pride in your appearance because it was important because years previous you was being bullied for your appearance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I took pride. I didn't want people to, you know, I mean, I was lucky enough like, when I moved away from my hometown, people accepted me for what I looked like. They didn't sort of, you know, because when I was at home, all I was getting was, you know, like people knew me and I'd grown up with them throughout the years. So, and I just thought, I ain't going to go through my adulthood getting bullied, walking to a pub, you're buying the drinks, you're doing this, you know, and let's go beat Bill up or, you know, let's go pick Billy up or something. Let's go take piss out of him or something. Put, let's send him a birthday card, but let's put a dog shit in it. Mm. 
you know, I mean, I stupidly opened that card. Oh, that happened? It happened, yeah, yeah. And I hope the person will, you know, some of these bullies will think back to that. Because I am getting some contacts from the previous podcast from uh, people I've gone to school with saying, is that you? Yeah, I've not replied. I don't, yeah, it is me. Just think what you've done, you know. I'm sorry you endured that, mate. And I hope after we've we've had our chat, even if you feel fractionally better, we're on the we're on the right road to recovery, because we're going to get to we're going to get to the unpleasant bit now. So, a hundred thousand pounds worth of Kirby Hoover's was stolen. A woman got a knife put to her stomach who was pregnant. You didn't know anything about it. In the background, I can only assume it. The owners of this business had said to Kev, this is what's happened. And then Kev's taken the law into his own hands. Now I've, so Kev was a guest on on my show only a few weeks ago and uh, very remorseful as well. It's not, even when, you, when you're not in the room, very, very remorseful, uh, didn't glamorise it at all, completely owned he was in the wrong and wants to put it right. But at the time, he thought he was right. So I've heard it from Kev's side. But from your from your side of the fence, how did you... F- Do you remember the morning, the day you got kidnapped? Yeah, uh, that day will never go. That day is the day it haunts me, for, will haunt me for the rest of my life. It's I can close my eyes and I can, I can sit. I'm still sat in the car. I see. I'm, I'm there sat in the car. And it does haunt me um, all the time. Was it a weekend? No, it was uh, Tuesday or Wednesday evening, because um, what happened? What what it was? It was a group of us sat up in my my flat. We weren't working that day because in the city you could have days off because you, if you worked. Um, but we were all sat there, and the partner at the time had arranged to um, get some money off the managing director as a loan out of a advance off of wages, and we thought smashing. We'll get some. We were going out that evening. And uh, so I said, look, oh, you can buy the weed, basically. So that's why I went with her. And she said, oh, you come, you can go into, you can go and get the weed. Well, um, once I get the money off uh, John, I went, yeah, no problem. And then we got down to the office. Uh, I, I said, I'll just sit here. I didn't want to, because she was going to nip in and literally three, four minutes. I'll just sit in the car. So I decided to roll a cigarette. And uh, all of a sudden... I just heard something, then the car door opened and next thing I knew, Kevin had whacked me right in the face with something, which I now found out that it was a bar and bust my nose. I've, I think I was blacked out because I do remember seeing a white light, but then I remember getting being put in the back of the car, the door shut and then and someone kicking me. And um, we went to, I think it was an area just outside Reading or somewhere and sort of dragged out the car. And basically, uh, run over. And was it was it just Kevin in the car? No, it was a uh, driver, someone in the front, and Kevin in the back. And, and was you asking what's going on? No, they were shouting at me, asking me where, uh, where the fuck's the money? What have you done with it? We're going to fucking, you know, get it out of you. It was there was lots. Of, I was I was there was a lot of confusion going on in my head. You know, I could I could feel pain. I could I could hear shouting, but I was just 
I, I was oblivious to what was going on. You know, I mean, I was just, what's what's happening? What what is this? What's this? I thought it was just someone having a joke coming over the wall, and you know, next thing I'm getting run over a couple of times, being questioned and asked for phone numbers, and you know, beaten. And when when you was in the back of the car, was you was you saying you've got the wrong man? I don't. I can't remember. I I just kept on saying I, I don't know what what, what you're talking about. I, I can't remember. I was just. I think I was screaming and shouting. I don't know what you're talking about. I've got I had no idea. No idea. They kept on repeated kicking and punching and you know uh, punching. A lot of punching was done in the back of the car towards this area, and then got out of the car and it's a lot of more. Was it woodland they took you to? Initially it was wooden, but they got spooked and then took us to another part of somewhere. And then the, the final part was when they dragged me out of the car to the canal side. So when they got, you, you got run over during this process? Yeah, a couple of times, yeah. So you, they took you out the back of the car? Yeah, pinned me down. Pinned you down, any punching and kicking? Yeah, yeah, well, I was still rolling around, struggling, trying not to, I didn't lay there and take the car. I tried to not get run over, basically, but they were holding me down. Wow. And you're fully conscious as well. And uh, I just remember the pain. I thought the legs, my legs had snapped and they were busting all, but, but they weren't. They were just severely damaged and uh, squashed, basically, crushed. There's nothing broken. It was just all pure tendon muscle damage. And basically, I, I do still suffer to this day when it gets cold. With uh, It just goes a bit limpish, my leg. So From being run over, then because they continued to torture you after that. Yeah, I was back in the car then. And so they run you over, then put you back in the car. Was that in the boot or the back seat? The back seat. Back seat. It was all back seat. People asked me what were you thinking at the time. I can remember having flashbacks, but that's because there was blows to the heads and I was getting pictures. Like I was playing my Black Labrador. I got a picture of that, you know, like a, a flash. And it was a, a picture I took of my mum and sister in the garden. That come back as a flash. But then I was, I think I was quietly saying goodbye to myself because I knew I weren't coming out of this. You, did you think you was going to die? Yeah, yeah. Especially yeah. when they hit a canal. Yeah, so they, after that, so they've run you over, then put you back in the car, then what happened from there? Uh, that was a trip to the M4. I remember just lying there, getting kicked and punched again. Same question all the time. Where's the money? Where's, where is it? What have you done with it? We're going to beat you till you take us to it then um, car stopped I was uh, dragged out and then uh, taken to the side of the bank of the canal and the, the that was the biggest light I saw that night when I got smashed on the, I didn't realise I'd been CS gas but I do now recall remember some kind of burning before hitting the water but because I hit the water it just washed away so I, did, I was unaware I'd been CS gassed but um, that light, I remember then, a falling and then going underwater, then sort of coming back up and hearing the car uh, shooting off at high speed and it, it went off at high speed and then I managed to somehow get under the bridge and hide because I heard a car coming and I thought, oh, they're coming back just to make sure I'm not about. And I'd, they'd done, I'd gone. And so in, in your mind, you thought, they're trying to murder me. Yeah. But then um, I'd managed to float along the other side of the bridge and uh, get out. And I don't know how I got out, but 
there was no no one there to help me. It was I think it was one o'clock in the morning or something, uh, freezing cold March, and I, I just I can't I, I I don't know how I got out, but I got out, and I thought I need to get away from here. So that's when I because my legs were sore. I couldn't. So I, I tried to stand, but I just couldn't put any body weight on my legs. So I had to sort of physically crawl across this road and then hid behind the bush embankment type thing. In every every car it I heard, I would just hide and I would think that they were coming back for me. They were coming back for me, but they never. That's a hell of an ordeal, mate. To be hit with an iron bar, put in the back of a car, continuously beaten to a pulp, run over, and then thrown into a canal. And again, I tip my hat to you for sitting there and just reliving it and talking about it. Because I also know why you're doing this. You're doing this trying to help other people. Yeah, it's only fair that I say that halfway through this interview, like massive respect for you, brother. So when you'd realised that the car had now finally gone, where did you go from there? Did you go hospital, home, police? I, I waited till sort of daybreak, like early morning daybreak, and uh, I noticed a couple of houses. Where I was, I could see a couple of houses, and that's where I eventually crawled. I think it, it felt like hours I, I was crawling, to, you know, trying to get to this house, but I eventually got there, and then I just sort of somehow fell at the door and just kind of started kicking this door, and um, a man and his dog came to the door, so that's where... Yeah, the dog comes into it, but I wasn't found by a man and a dog. I went to a man and a dog's house in the dog, and I always remember the dog being there. And the bloke who opened the door shouted to his missus, um, "Phone an ambulance! Someone's been run over by a car." And I was, and when the ambulance turned up, even they thought I'd been run over by a car, because I, I, I had no clue what had gone on. I didn't know what, you know, and all I've think that someone's beaten me up for a hundred grand, and I just didn't know what to do, and I just sort of closed down. You know, I mean, if they want to think I got run over by a car, then, you know, I got run over by a car, but it wasn't that. It wasn't till uh, the, I went to hospital, and uh, a couple of days later, I was known as, because I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I can't, I couldn't remember my name. It was weird, I couldn't remember certain things, It was, or it was maybe me choosing not to give my details at the time. Because I was feared because what was said, you know, we're going to come and get you and we'll get your family. So we've got your numbers, you know. So I just, I didn't want to talk to no one. So I just clammed up. And then when they were searching my property, they found a phone number wrapped up in a cigarette packet and they rung it and said, yeah, it's been missing for a day and a half. And that's when it all come to light. Because like, they'd been looking for me in Reading for, since that evening because my friends had reported me missing at 10 o'clock that night because my girlfriend had actually gone back and to the apartment and um, my friend said, where's Billy? She said, I don't know, he, just, he wasn't in the car when I got the money. And she just sort of went back to the apartment as if nothing had happened. So, But then it transpired that what had happened had happened. And at what stage did, did the police take this seriously? Uh, as soon as that phone call was made and that, uh, when the hospital made the phone call to that, friend of mine, he said, yeah, he's been missing for three days. They automatically got the Metropolitan Police involved. They were already involved, but they were treating it as a car crash, a, a, a hit and run, basically. 
But then it, they, then Thames Valley Police took over and started taking taking care of things. Did you go to the trial? I did, yeah. Do you remember how long it was the time between the kidnap and the trial? Uh, it, was, it was quite lengthy. It was about just over about six, seven months, nine months yeah. waiting. Did that give you enough time to kind of get your head together and make a little bit of sense of what happened? I was getting supported a lot by the police and they were sort of like... Because I had to give evidence, basically. They were sort of making sure I was still OK and I was comfortable. And, you know what I mean? But it was after the case that they, they failed to let me down, basically. OK, that's interesting. So up, so up until the trial, they were, they were supportive? Yeah. Once they realised that um, I was innocent and I had nothing to do with any theft at all after serious questioning uh, by them, uh, it just... And they realised that, no, he's a victim, he's not a suspect. Initially, I was a suspect from the hospital when they picked me up. They were take. I was thinking I was going to Redden to take a, you know, victim statement, but it wasn't the case. The journey from the hospital to Redden Station was more of a, I would say now, unofficial police interview. It was more of an interrogation of what they were saying, that they were convinced that I had actually stolen the money. They, in their, they, they told me, we don't believe you, we, we never believe anybody, so why should we believe you? And I had that for hours and it was threatening me, you know, think, think what he did to you, think what we can do to you. And it was, you know, it wasn't corruption or anything, but I think they were just trying to make sure that, you know, like putting the, the fear of God into me again to make see if I would break, but I didn't. I just kept on what I said to you, I'm innocent, I will sit here till the day I die and say I had nothing to do with that. And they just realised that once we got to Redden, because anybody gone through what I'd gone through in that hour and a half journey was like another kidnapping to me. Mm. That's what it felt like. Yeah, I bet. But then as soon as we got to the station, I was put in a room and then the policeman that brought me up, I didn't see again, never ever saw him again. But there was two other policemen and they were nice. And they, that's when it all started to change with the, the, the not so much of a, um, you did this, you are a victim here. To be treated as a suspect after an ordeal like that must have blown your mind. Well, yeah, and I've always asked myself why me. It's now, it's now starting to make sense. It's starting to tick a lot of boxes with me, why it was me. I was put forward by my colleagues. Why? Because I dressed smartly. And... You know, because I had nice things. And for you, how you feel inside, the more you speak about it like this, it's just an open conversation, Does do you feel a little bit lighter? I do because um, it's part of my therapy. You know, I've gone through a lot of process of, you know, therapy and, you know, it's a... And believe it or not, I'm, I'm actually controlling myself at the moment. Um, I'm actually... Trying to concentrate on answering your questions, but I'm in another place at the moment because uh, it's just taking the emotion away, and it's part of your PTS therapy as well. You sort of you think just build yourself a little little area, a little world, you know, similar to Sims World. Well, I'm sat on the beach at the moment drinking a beer, but still having this conversation with you. But in my head, just get away from that emotion. That's what I'm thinking. So that's why I'm a, that's why I'm sort of being a bit. You know, I've got to sort of pause a little bit and go there for a minute before I can respond to your questions. Well, it, it's great that you've got a mechanism that you've that you've attached yourself to that helps you deal with 
with your trauma and process it. I mean, that's that's great and that's that's headway. So you you may have to take yourself back to that beach now. Uh, I'm still there. Yeah, you're chilling out. <laughs> uh, the trial. How did you feel when you were sat? I mean, it's it's daunting being in a in a big courtroom, especially a trial so serious as that. Did you feel intimidated or scared when you saw Kevin Court? Uh, the first day of the trial didn't go ahead because I failed to show up uh, at Red and Crown Court because uh, I didn't want to go. I, I decided that morning to take myself uh, for a, a nice big walk with a lot of drink and drugs. And basically uh, the trial didn't go ahead on the first day. Um, and then it got moved the second day to Oxford Grand Court. But on the first day of the trial, um, I just went for a walk and did a lot of stupid things, uh, literally. Got absolutely off my head on drinking drugs. And then the police came round. I went actually home about two o'clock and half two, the police come round and give me a right bollock and say, you've just cost us an absolute arm and a leg. Fought to me. Now I have to relocate to Oxford. And I don't know. You know, I don't, I'm not. I'm not going. I'm not going. And it goes. Oh, you're going to turn up tomorrow. We're going to come and get. You. I said, No, you're not. I said, I'll make my own way. So the second day of the trial, a friend of mine took a, took me took me to Oxford. But on the way, we had about I had about four stellars, a couple of spliffs, and um, got to the court. Uh, went to Weatherspoons, and by about ten thirty that morning, we had a full. I had a full blown session. I was actually steaming drunk, and I was told. Uh, at the stand to leave court and to come back sober. Again, day two, suspended. And uh, eventually the police took me home and said, uh, we're going to look after you tonight so you don't drink. We're going to take you to court tomorrow. I didn't drink that night, but I actually did drugs in the bathroom that they didn't were unaware of because they thought I won't, they weren't going to stop me from, you know, my little pleasure of blocking everything out. Mm. But I did go to court the next day, uh, give my evidence, um, that was it, pat on the back. There you go. And so when you was in the courtroom this time, Compass Mentis, do you remember how you felt? Oh, yeah, I was, I was, I remember it to this day, I was like emotional. I was a shaken, nervous wreck. I couldn't look at anybody uh, that side of me. I just kept on staring at the judge. Well, they said to me, like, just focus on the judge mm -hmm. as if you're having a conversation with the judge. And that's what I did. I just focused on that. And do you remember when the the guilty verdicts got dished out? I wasn't, uh, uh, when I'd finished my, giving my evidence, I asked the police officer, I went, are you picking me up to bring us up tomorrow? Because I want to come and watch. And he said, no, no, we don't want you here. We don't want you to listen to anything that's going on here uh, for your own safety. It's best if you just, you know, go, disappear, you know, not come back and we'll ring you with the verdicts. Uh, uh, but from, from what I gather, the reason they didn't want there was that at any point uh, it, it, it could have been an attempt at, uh, in my life again or or something. That's what they were telling me. He knows a lot of people. And did that cross your mind at the time when you was given evidence that yeah there could be further repercussions? Yeah, he's got. He had my. He had phone numbers. You know, I had to disassociate myself with a lot of my family in that fear. He could ring them up and go, yeah, I'm coming to get you. You know what I mean? So I disassociated myself for years. 
for them. You know, just nothing to do with them. How, how did it feel once you realised that they was behind bars? No different. Same. Same, yeah. He knows people. That was all going through my head. He knows people. It just being maybe a case of, like, you know, like one day I'm walking down the road and... Do you remember how, do you remember how long he got? Uh, I think it was about, in total, eight years. Where I thought, that's great, eight years. But then I found out later it, it was eight years, but because of time on remand and good behaviour, it was, it, it was, I think it was about eight, eight, about two years or something. But all my fear, because I was moving around by then, I thought, I'll just keep moving around. And, you know, I got, uh, I went homeless for several months, lived on the streets for several months, thinking that was a good bolt hole. But I eventually just got in, got involved with uh, a lot of drink and drugs. I nearly got addicted to a certain homeless drug everybody was doing at the time. Heroin? Yeah. I didn't want to go down that. What did you do? Start smoking it? I didn't want to do it anymore. I just thought, that's it, got to get out of here. But what am I going to? I've got nothing. I can't go home. You know, if I do, like, what's going to happen to my family? So I just sort of, like, I call it my black, black area. It was like seven years of, you know, just wandering around. Why me? Why Why did people think it was me? Why? You know, I mean, the homelessness, the, the drink, you know, just to, you know, and... The barricading in myself in rooms, you know, at night when I come home. Because you're probably thinking, well, hold on, he's, he's gone from homeless to Shadokov. I picked myself up from that homelessness and I had to make a decision. I couldn't live there. If I did, I wouldn't be sitting here today because I would have probably been dead probably about 20, 25 years ago now. So, but I just had to pick myself up and move on. And so, yeah, I got a little job to fund my drinking and my drugs. But that was my only block out was the drinking drugs. Was you getting any support? No, nothing. No aftercare? No, I was promised a lot of things by the police. Like, like, not not a full relocation package, but it was more of a case of like, if you wanted to move anywhere in the UK, we would put a flag on you. So if anything happened to you, um, then the first person we would speak to would be Kevin Lane. That's what the first person, because anything, you know, if anything was to happen at that time, they would have gone straight to him. But I just kept on moving around the place so like, he wouldn't sort of like, try and find me. Was it brought to your attention when Kev was released from prison? No. No one rung me and said, he's out. I got a phone call um, from a police officer in 2024, late 2024 or something, saying he's going he's just been done for murder and he'll walk in, but he'll come out feet first because he'll probably get killed in prison. So calm down. You can relax. He's gone. He ain't going to bother you again. And I took that, you know, I thought, you know, I can breathe, but hold on. There's still people out there, you know, I mean, you might have a legacy or something to, to, you know, determined to find me and get me. So that was all back of my head, but... Mm. So you lived in fear for... Well, you lived, you've lived in fear pretty much up until now, which has been... How many years ago was that? From 92 to 98, that was my fear... That was my big, biggest... Uh, my... Uh, a big void in my life is certain things I can't remember that I'd done through drinking drugs. Not not bad things, but, you know, I mean, all I remember is, like, going to work, getting pissed, going to sleep, blocking it out, get up, go to work, get pissed, block it out. That was my pattern. But then I sort of, like, slowly, over the periods, um, 
calmed down a little bit. It'd gone away knowing that he was doing life and been told that he's not, he's not coming out totally out of prison. And that uh, I took that as a bit of a like, quiet period. And I went for about 15 years where it, I'd not... Uh, not totally forgotten about the incident because it was there every night. It would come and creep me up, like like walking through, like say a pub car park, and an evening you hear an engine rev. It'll be like that, a jump, you know, what's that? Or headlights, you know, or someone tooting their horn, or a car, two car doors shutting at the same time, which spook me. That all seemed to have calmed down a little bit because I was concentrating on work. My mind was elsewhere, just purely on work focus and not thinking of the incident. I'm assuming they diagnosed you with PTSD. Um, no, I didn't know. I didn't know. It was uh, only up until about 2015 um, when I was flicking through some channels and uh, a programme came up with Kevin's face on it. And it just, it just, my life just changed that night. I just went physically white. I was physically sick. Uh, I had to go to the toilet. I was just shaking like a nervous wreck. It was just, you know, like having something flash up with you, you haven't seen in over 20 years, all of a sudden, and it just, I don't, it's hard to describe, it was something that, that turning light back on, after it being off for a number of years, it had gone dark, but then all of a sudden, everything's back, and there was a period of time where I thought, well, I'm not going to go back to where I was in the 90s with the drinking drugs and that I need to start looking at what help I can get. I'd uh, heard about a restorative justice. Um, I had a little, sorry, I had a little bit of a breakdown in 2019 um, and uh, basically told, it got to a stage where I was drinking a little bit more than what I should have been in. The, the mind was running overdried again, basically. And I started disassociating myself with a lot of people, including my daughter and family again after building up so many years of friendship, I just thought, hold on, he's out there again, he's going to come and get me, he's going to get the family, he's, you know, he's still got a vendetta against me. So that's why uh, there was a lot of messages said, there was a lot of people told to piss off that day. Even when I walked into, I had a meeting at 11 o'clock that morning, I walked in and I said, I'm pissed off everything in here and just threw my book down and walked off that job. And that was the start. And I got home back to the hotel and I thought... Was you feeling suicidal? No, not at that time. I have previously. Um, that was 93. Uh, and uh, I just went back to the hotel and I thought, I'm not going back to where I was in 92 to 97. I'm not going back down that route. You know, I mean, I've got, I've got a lot, lot, lot of good things going for me. But in that day, week, I lost everything, literally. Lost contact with my family, my daughter. We didn't speak for about a year. That's my choice. And I just don't, I didn't want to, I just felt that he was out there again, he was going to get me, and I had to do something about this. I had to, because I can't have him ruining my life again, you know what I mean, second time round. And uh, so then I started looking at restorative justice. How did restorative justice even come on your radar? I was just googling uh, victim support and what 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 help was out to people who was involved in an incident so many years ago. Is there help out there for people like me? You know, what I mean, who's probably sitting suffering now? We're probably watching this now. That's me. 
that's me deep down. A lot of people, you know, I mean, I've done a lot of covering up over the years. You know, I mean, it's, uh, people are, this is shocking people finding out it's me mm. to the extent that my nephew didn't even, and he follows Kevin. He's followed him for years. And he's, he's a, he knew about the kidnapping, but he, he didn't know it was me until last week. And it shocked him, literally. It's shocking people left, right and centre. They just can't believe because I've kept it such a secret. Um, there is a small handful of people that know, who I've let know. Um, but I've lost jobs over it. I've, I've lost a lot of things over it. You know, it's, Sometimes I wake up on a, a morning and I'm anxious, but I'll phone in to the company and say, I've got sickness and diarrhoea, I've got a headache. And they don't realise that what effort it takes me to get out of bed in the morning to get out of that front door sometimes. You know, sometimes it can, I can have a bad night. I can have a good day. I'd be good days, be bad days, basically. Crippling anxiety. Mm. And uh, you don't know when it's going to smother you. You get anxious about being anxious and then you're anxious and then you can't talk about the anxiety because you're too anxious to, to talk about it and you're, you're in that will. It takes a big pair of balls to do what you're doing minus the, the, the anxiety. It really does. So what is restorative justice exactly? Uh, restorative justice is uh, where the victims and perpetrators can meet or it can be the perpetrator and the victim. It can be either one's choice. Um, so basically, I contacted restorative justice through victim support after doing a little bit of research and finding, if you scrolling through their pages, there is that service. And I looked into it and I spoke to... Initially, it was telephone conversations. Then uh, they see if it's worthwhile for victim support to put you in contact with their restorative justice department. So I was successful in getting that. And the, 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 it started from there initially with uh, a victim support person who then put us, in uh, put us in touch with Martin Havelock from the Oxfordshire um, Restorative Justice uh, company and basically he rung me up we had a initial phone call then it was a face-to-face -face chat which was quite a long one it wasn't a case of an hour it was like he wanted to know everything basically and why I wanted to do it basically and I just wanted closure and part of that closure was part of my therapy you know I mean meeting the perpetrator you know and see see what he's got to say for it because I'd spent years uh, asking myself why me knowing I was innocent, but other people around me, probably up until I saw this podcast, probably thought the same. Even, you know, yeah, he would nick out money. Then they contacted um, Kevin and asked Kevin that Will's contacted us and he wants to have a meeting. And uh, I'm glad glad to say he agreed to that meeting because uh, if he didn't, I think I don't think I'd have been sat here today. I think I would... Uh, on another route at some point. Before you met Kevin for the first time, did you have a list of questions what you wanted to ask him or did, was it more a list of things you wanted to tell him? That was just one one question, why me? And I asked him, why, why me? And he told me, he explained that to me. There's certain, you know, there's certain things that that, that day of that meeting, it, it was said, it, I think we need to keep confidential. Um, it was an emotional day, but there was a lot said, and I, I think that should be just between myself and Kevin what was said that day because it was 
it was emotional. It was good because of the outcome of where we are today, you know, getting the message across. It does work. You know, it's not a case of like, Kevin met me that day and then waved me goodbye. He's been there for me, you know, because he, he knows he's wrong. And now he's trying to help me and like, he is helping me. And not just, you know, like, what other people think financially. It's not that. Just speaking to Kevin and being in his presence is my therapy because it's, I know, I know he got it wrong. But in his eyes, he got it right. A lot of people that done what Kevin done, if a victim reached out to him to say, I want to do restorative justice, I want to see you face to face and get to the bottom of this. I'm hazarding a guess here, but I don't think many people would would agree to that. I think it would be easier for them to block it out. I went to jail for it. It's done. I don't want to bring up the past or they don't want to, they don't actually want to face the reality of what they've done and look at someone's life that they've, they've destroyed. They'd probably spare themselves that feeling because it would be very easily avoided. It would just be a straightforward, no, it was in the past. I'm leaving it there. Well, that would be their choice, of course. Hmm. Um, the 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 reason being is that I would spend, I would look at was I innocent or was I guilty, and did I deserve that? In my case, I didn't deserve it. I was not guilty. But answering your question, there's people out there. It's probably deserved. You know, if if Kevin had got the right person, he would the person who'd done that deserved it in my eyes, in threatening a woman with a child. He deserved that. But I wouldn't expect him thirty years later to come and ask for a uh, like meeting with him. I I'm looking at like people who's innocently been involved in crime for whatever reason, you know, what I mean, may it be for mistaken identity. There's a lot of them out there. Uh you know, even burglaries, you know, it has effect on people. You know, I mean, why that burglar went into that individual's house? You know, it's not a case of just, that's the perpetrator's choice. They can turn around and say no, but it's got to be either party that makes the first move. As with me, I made the first move. But Kevin, as I said, Kevin could have turned around and said no. And I would have to accept that, but I would have actually wrote him a letter and, you know, explaining, you know, I mean, the circumstances that he got it wrong in. But that was another option with restorative justice. You can't actually write a letter to the individuals. You wanted to face-to-face? -face. I wanted to face-to-face. -face. I wanted him to know he got it wrong in what he'd done, how, he's, how it's affected my life. And how did you feel about Kev when you, when you first sat opposite him after all them years? I was angry to begin with. I was angry because... Like, but I was angry with myself, knowing that I'm innocent and he doesn't know that. And the whole point of the meeting was to get that across to him, was that I was innocent. Did you warn to him? Um, I did. It was when he, when he, when he apologised and the way he said sorry and the, the, just, just the, the remorse in the, the Kevin's face that day, I just broke down, literally. Once he'd said that, he said, sorry, I got it wrong. And as soon as he said it, it was like shaking a bottle of Coke up and opening it. To me, I just, 30 years of relief just come out, you know. And from that day, you know, I mean, I, I, my healing started, literally. You know, and, then, and afterwards he said, come on, we'll go for a coffee. I was a bit dubious at first because the the story of justice that people did say, like, there might be a case of, like, you know, I mean, a wave of a hand and that's it, you'll never see him again. 
but then there might be a case of like, you could make a good friendship going here. And basically that's what part of my therapy is, you know, to like, understand Kevin got it wrong and for him to understand that he got it wrong. And it's the best therapy, you know, that I've had. You know, I mean, no drink, no drugs can beat that at the moment. You're on a high now. Totally. You know what I mean? A lot of people would look you. at this and say, like, someone made a comment, I was less ner- I was less nervous on the last one. When I did the James English podcast, I was bricking every second of that. My voice was going, I was controlling emotion, I was on the beach. And, you know, people, and hopefully people will look at this, yeah, he's getting more relaxed now. He's more... I'm getting relaxed because I'm getting the message out. I'm talking about it more and it, it's it's healing each podcast as a heal to me at the moment, especially with Kevin behind me and supporting me. That's that's the that's the key thing to this. You've done really well, mate. You and you are you are doing great. It's uh, again, I, I I tip my hat to you. Just the power of an apology. If someone's got it wrong to put their hands up and say, I mean, there's no honour in torturing somebody, obviously. Although I would probably be inclined to do the same to somebody if I knew they put a knife up to a pregnant woman's stomach for absolutely no reason. Uh, and Kev did think he got the right guy, but there certainly is a hell of a lot, on, a lot of honour in meeting someone face to face that they've done that to, knowing they got the wrong person and saying, I am sorry. Yeah. And look how much it's helped you. Look, you said it there. You know, like after what what happened, it wasn't a case of like the sorry bit. It was the the man hug afterwards. Mm. You know, I mean, the last time I'd felt Kevin was his fists, but to feel the embrace, that man, that man, he nearly took the window at me, nearly cracked my ribs again, basically with the amount of squeezing. I knew that was as a real hug. That was coming from the you know. Yeah. Just like we hugged this morning. You give me a good hug, triple that. That's the way that felt to me this morning. I didn't know how hard to go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but you can squeeze me anytime. <laughs> After this, we are we are gonna have a we're gonna have a big hug. So, so in, in a moment, I'm gonna speak to Kevin because he's listened to this whole conversation, and then I want to bring you back uh, to have the final say because this is very much about you. This podcast, uh, but it's safe to say that now you and Kev have formed a friendship from this. It's a bond and friendship in, you know, I mean, uh, we don't talk about the kidnapping, basically, because uh, I don't, uh, at the end of the day, I've drawn a line in the sand. I don't want to keep talking about the past, even though through these podcasts, I'm talking about the past, but I don't, we don't directly talk to one another about it. We just talk about other things, like the event coming up on the 23rd of February at the Cambridge Country Club, you know, where I'll be there. So like, Kevin will be there, a few of us will be there. Uh, other things as well, the podcast, the future, you know. Do me a favour, just just plug that event again because I think, I mean, there's one thing watching you two on a podcast chat or watching this conversation between you and me, but actually being in a room like I am now with, with the two of you and speaking to you both, it's a whole different level of energy. So, yeah, just so where's the location and what's the date? Cambridge Country Park Club. And it's on the 23rd of February. Uh, it's Matt Legg, Peter Fury, uh, Kevin Lane with special guests. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'll just uh, give one a... Will you have a drink that night? Uh, I'll limit my drinking, uh, but yeah, I'll probably uh, one or have two. a couple. One or two, yeah. Yeah, you've, you've definitely you've definitely earned one or two there. And people can find links to this event? Yeah, on uh, Kevin's Fitted Up Fighting Back uh, site. I'm getting my platform sorted out. 
in the next couple of weeks. Uh, hopefully I'll be able to put out some uh, daily sort of like um, podcasts, you know, how I'm getting on and what I'm doing. So I'm going to try and do that eventually at some point and hopefully people will pick up and we'll do some activities over the podcast as well. Or mental health, of course. During this stint we've been chatting, you've grown. You've become more and more... That's what these do. ...relaxed. And at the start, I'll be honest with you, I felt like I was talking to a real fragile person and it sort of, I felt, I felt quite emotional at times, if I'm being honest with you. And then the longer it's gone on, the more you've spoke, I sort of, I, I can now feel strength across the table. So that's a, that's a very nice way to, to end this section of it. And now I'm going to speak to Kevin, just, just hear his reflection on what he's just heard. Yeah, no problem. Cheers, Will. All right, thank you. Kev, it's good to have you back. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's good to see you again. It was good to speak to Will independently. It was quite emotional at times. I sort of felt I, there was a couple of times I welled up. I thought, Oof, I wonder how you're feeling. So from what you've just listened to there, how does that make you feel? Will's still a bit shaky with that because he's reliving the memories all the time, isn't he? It's quite nervous for him to keep repeating it because in his head, the subconscious brain's still saying, that's bad, 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 and he's still battling with that. I definitely wouldn't want to make the same mistakes again. It just reinforces me that I believe that there's a lot to be gained from restorative justice, uh, meeting your victims, because of the damage that I did to Will. It really enforces to me that there's uh, a lot of change needed with courses in prison. I'm not deflecting from Will, of course, but I'm talking about the pain that he still suffers. And what he went through is what jumps out in me, thinking, well, really glad that he's come to the table with me. Um, well, he, he actually, after this, he was asked uh, to do some talks, and he said, well, look, actually, I'll come as a team. I'll come with Kevin Lane. I had no idea about that. But, of course, um, some people want, might want to interview him on their own. Some might want us both there. But nonetheless, it shows that he's moving forward, and collectively, I think that some positives if you can say such a thing, will definitely come out of this and change other people's thought pattern. Mm. Did you did you feel in any way saddened or emotional listening to him relive how it made him feel? Yeah, if I said that I didn't, I'd be lying because um, I've done three now with you. And I say it gets easier... You're hearing it again, and it still lets you know the first time I heard it. I mean, bloody hell. It's really powerful. Uh, so you're in prison when you walk on the landings and there's violence around you all day. You get used to it. So I don't mean it in that context, but I will never get away from the pain that I've caused him when I see him and I look at him. That's what I feel, and I will always feel that. So hearing it and talking about it is like stoking a fire again. Um, and reminding me, it's like going to an AA meeting. Fair play to you, mate, for what I was saying to Will. I don't think many people would agree to restorative justice, the one that committed the crime. I think most people would, it'd be a lot easier to say, I, I don't need reminding of, 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 of my mistakes. I, I don't want to enter into that. That's what I personally think. I, I'd be interesting to know the stats. Have you ever looked at them? No, I haven't. Uh, but there's, there's different types of restorative justice. You've got the sycamore tree. Um which is a, a great course, but you don't get to meet all of, not all of the people who attend the Sycamore Tree get to meet their victims and get to meet a victim of a crime that happened 
many years ago and they're just retelling their story. But to, I do know that to meet your victim, very powerful. And But there'll be some people say, I just don't give two monkeys. Well, that's their lifestyle. That's maybe the way they thought. Um, but I do think that it would do a lot of good if people were to meet their victim. I wonder how many people watching this have, have done things in the past, got it wrong. I wonder how many people would actually do what you've done and said, yeah, I'm going to go, I'm going to look my victim straight in the eye, I'm going to apologise, and then you're going to build a friendship from there. You didn't just walk You didn't just walk out, shake hands, and just forget about it. You went, let's go for a coffee. But anyone that knows you, like, that's you. That is me, yeah. Thank you for saying that, because I'm so glad you said that, Liam, because it isn't like I've got to make this right. <clears throat> I... Just naturally, like you said to me, do you want to go for a coffee? And Will picked up on that, that it was, uh, it's not the, the beast that's beating him in front of him now. Um, like I said, I did have my ex there, and she's pretty. She's very soft-natured to if she was to meet her. So that made it better having a woman now. Um, I said previously, I said, I think he kept looking at her tits. That's why he wanted to go for coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Will's, Will's over there, he's not denying it. Or admitting it, <laughs> can't blame him. Should have yeah. a nice pair of knockers. <laughs> <laughs> but that, but that, it, that is who you are, and it is only fair because a lot of people that will be listening to this, it would be easy for them to forget it was many, many years ago, and it'll be easy to forget that you're not that person anymore. Easier for them to think you're a monster, whereas you're absolutely not. I know you're not. I know that you're full of love, full of good energy, full of positivity. Every time we speak off air it's nothing but love you wish you wish everybody well so i can confirm that's so true kev is a good kev's a good guy he just done some bad things yeah thank you for saying that because you know i've had a few comments in relation to this would have been quite hard i'll say no more but meet me first hmm. meet me or why is it that millions of people across the board fifth on itunes downloads about a year ago so millions of people get to see me and Say, well, God, Kevin, I wish you're a proper gentleman. You can see you're a gentleman, regardless of what you've done. Wish there was more people like you. Wish people live to your morals and your standards, regardless of what I've done. Uh, and they probably give it to me. But when I meet people out in the street, anywhere I go, I have a laugh for people. They don't know me. Well, I'll get recognised a lot now, massively so. Um, I'm not that bad a person because my nature going out the door every day isn't an act. And by you doing this, you're you're actually encouraging people not to do bad things. You're not just putting it all in the past, living a private life and not taking responsibility for what you've done and just forgetting about it. You're actually going out there going, it ain't cool to behave like that. Like, make it right if you can. I say previously, like, being a criminal, being a gangster is a mug's world. Well, some people do very well at it. Some people never go to prison. But the statistics will show that 99 or 95% of criminals go to prison, get nicked at some point, or have a load of ag. Very few people do really successfully with it and don't have the ag that's associated with it. So your crimes, regardless of doing well at uh, being a criminal, your crimes impact on somebody where it doesn't do so well on them and won't do so well on you once you get nicked or how people think of you. I'm hoping that people will have a second thought about their actions and to see what's, how it's affected Will and changed his life. 
and I have to say, through the messages that I receive, people have actually said, blimey, I've done, you've made me think about my actions and contacting the victim. And I've had a lot of that. So it has worked. I could see it in Will's eyes that it's massively helped him as well. And that's powerful. I'll tell you another thing. This is for the audience at home because you're not going to sit there and rattle off all the, all the good things that you do. But people that follow Kevin will send him direct messages telling him that they, they love his work, they love what he stands for, and Kevin will respond. And I know this firsthand because after he left my house last time, this is exactly what he done. He found out where people were at that time that sent him the message that followed him, and he went and met them for a pint. I do it all the time. So last night I was in Hastings at Bashy's wedding. He's on Instagram. Bashy goes around fighting people, doesn't he, Bash? He's coming on and I got. An, he did invite me. There we go. So I went to his wedding. Uh, great wedding. So I said to, uh, I'm in Hastings, if there's anyone down there. And a, a woman said, look, I want a book. I said, well, I've got a book here. Okay, uh, I'll sign it for you and bring it down. And I have men. You passed me that book, mate. Sorry. Yeah, now you're mentioning the book. This is the book, Fitted Up and Fighting Back, which will give you more information uh, on Will, Kev's life. And you're changing part of this book, aren't you? Yes, it's a bit about Will. Yeah. So what I was told, what I was led to believe, what the police were led to believe, to what is the facts now. And now that you know that it wasn't Will and you're on a whole new journey with each other, including a, a nice, solid friendship, this is going to be amended in the book. Absolutely. And when we were talking earlier about where we went for coffee, um, I find that if you've got an open personality, you are genuinely, uh, you care about people in terms of like, you like people, if they're good. And we'll see that. So uh, he has a laugh with me. I mean, I bloody, I went to give him this the other day because he keeps putting, doing jokes about putting things out of his ass. That's what come out of my ass in a banged up series. <laughs> so I had to cut that down from Brendan Kerr of Kelpway. Yes, scars, cut it down. Uh, and I'll give that to Will. And may I? You may, yes. And he don't smell a shit either. Anyone that watched Kevin on Banged Up when he smuggled in the contraband through, uh, through his, his arsehole, this was the container. Should we auction this? There'll be, some, there'll be someone out there who'll give you some dough for that. I'm a bit, I'm a bit attached to it in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> you can have that back. I might do. I was thinking about auctioning things like that, but because it's it's on TV and that, um, I'm going to auction some other stuff soon, but I'm a bit, I am a bit. am a bit attached to this because that's the original. Mm. Um, I might do an... Uh, uh, I get that's asked the to original. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> that ain't a prop. <laughs> it's not a spell, like, you know, so... Um, yeah, I was going to give him that to mess around because in some of his meetings he goes, does anyone want a cigarette? And they all know obviously what he's referring to. Um, but like I said, I'm going to change the book. I hope things are going to change now for a lot of people out there. I hope restorative justice and TED Talks and such and victim awareness is going to start to grow. I've been asked already in relation to more guest speeches. I'd like to go into more prisons uh, and universities and, and continue the path uh, there. I'm going to go and talk to some kids in Windsor hopefully soon teenage kids that's a big picture because they're on on the on the crest of a wave in a minute where they could go either way doesn't matter where you're from yeah uh, it's so easy to make a mistake mm. uh, and i'm hoping it's some if you just stop one or two or it'll be a lot more than that then we've done something right but i'm not doing it to get any more stripes on my shoulders or anything like that it's because i actually want to do it mm. I, and I, I know that to be true as well mm. i know that to be true and it's i'm very glad that we managed to get a laugh in this 
podcast in this interview because it was fucking heavy at times and it's nice that it's nice that you two uh, can share a laugh and a joke. That's beautiful, and it, I'm glad that you brought some humour into it because it was a bit tense. You have to look for the positive stuff, didn't you, Liam? Otherwise, you're forever looking down and thinking, oh, God, so... 100%. We have a laugh in that. I don't minimise what happened to him, OK, at all. And we, I've never actually spoke about what happened to him and took the piss about it. We might laugh about something that happened in the trial, mm. things like that. Or Will will tell me something that's happened to him and some of his uh, some people he knows might have said something. But no, I never actually take the piss about over what I did to him. Never. And you consider Will a friend now? Yeah, of course I do. I mean, we, we, there's a few things that have happened for him um, that are going to help him with his life straight away, uh, which I know he'd be grateful of, and it's a, it's a drop in the ocean, really, to what I did to him. But things are, are, are perking up. I think he's getting quite a lot of interest from the women factor now. I think he's happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> you deserve it, Will. When he got his hair cut. Down at Swells Barbers. It's all up for some. Yeah, I mean, look at the new man. <laughs> yeah. Um, but some good's coming from it. I, I feel better for it. I think that oh, what I did all that time ago and now. And you're both in a, in a good place. And it was a lifetime ago as well. It was a lifetime ago. And people change. And the people that don't change, shame on them. The people that do change, kudos to them. Because anyone that can admit their flaws and their mistakes, for me, that is the mark of a real man. And I meant it, you know that, and people can say, you can say you meant it, you know, yeah. so I generally did and do. Um, well, I'm going to tell you a little story about the, the trial. So, during the old style committal, my best mate, Marcus Lemaire, he got nicked and put on my mum for that kidnapping. And the old Bill said, if Lane's there, Lemaire's there, nick him, right? So he got nicked. I'm smiling, right? Because he gets right like that. And when we've got nicked, he's on. Fucking, I said, you're not going to let me go in there on my own, are you? <laughs> <laughs> and he's done Boston and all that. He's been to school in Oxford. He's a real educator. He answers all the questions on Chase pretty much before they do. Real intelligent bloke, right? And uh, come away, did four months, got bail because he didn't really match the descriptions. So I've said this once before, but I've got to tell you because it's such a good story. Okay, now he got bail. I said, fucking hell, like, you'll leave me after four months, I'll have you, to the fist. So he's gone. At the old style committal, I'm look, he's come walking through the door. He's got a black and white stripy T-shirt like a burglar, a white pair of trousers <laughs> 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 that you would never see him dressed in, right? And I burst out laughing because I know him. He's like a rough bricky, you know what I mean? Not dressed campy burglar. And I'm crying my laughter in the dock and he's sitting there like stone-faced. I know he's thinking, he's thinking... You've just thrown me in laughing at me like about my disguise. So the second day he came in like Mr. T with rings on all of his fingers, chains around his arm, around his wrists, all around his neck. He'd been to see a pal of ours called Blossom who kept a bit of gold. Uh, and he had all his hair brushed different leather jackets and he looked like Mr. T. The third day he came in looking like a casual. And the judge acquitted him because he said it's difficult to say that Mr. Le Maire matches any of the descriptions. <laughs> <laughs> Right, he was panicking. If I've done four months, so I'm not doing anything more. I weren't there, and uh, but I couldn't stop laughing every time he come in. I'm thinking, my God, you were fucking. But it showed how serious it was because you know I was looking at a big charge there, and I eventually I ended up getting four lots of two years to run concurrently. But I was looking at an eight to ten, I thought at the time, and as the judge said, determined said that you you're a vigilante. 
you took the law into your own hands. We can't have that in this country. But it's sort of like saying, I can see why you did it. You're a misguided young man who thinks you're a bit of a John Wayne putting the world to rights, which I did. I'll be actually honest about that. I love John Wayne. I love Rooster Cogburn. I thought he was great, you know, like spit in a bucket and shoot you. <laughs> <laughs> you was an old good band, damn bastard. <laughs> I thought he was great, John Wayne, right, in, in the true grit. But the jury came back and said they made the wrong decision. Yeah, it caught. Um, and the judge said, I know there's going to be an immediate appeal, immediate bail application. And I instructed my barrister to, to do no such thing. I would go and get on with my time. I didn't give evidence. I've done the crime. He's given me four lots of two. I'm bloody happy with that. And I thanked him. I went, thank you very much, Honor. Went down the stairs and got on with my bird. And then came out. I got two weeks parole. I did like 15 and a half months. Should have done 16 months. I did 15 and a half, which, you know, it's nothing for what I did to him. Say nothing. You're still away from your family. I had two kids at the time. So I went away uh, and I got... I had a probation officer, and I never forgot it, because I thought what I was doing was right still, and I still held on to those beliefs, in that police weren't able to protect the lady in question, hence why I got called to do all of it. And she said, would you do it again? I said, yeah, I would. So obviously I weren't going to, don't go well in front of the parole board, does it? But I did get two weeks, which is better than two weeks in the nick. Um, when you look at, the crime itself and how come Will was put forward as a ruse, really. It was he was a, a, an escape goat. It was everybody believed or was well, I was told that it was him. The bosses of the factories said it was him. Um, and of course we now know that his work colleague was putting him forward for it. The whole case was corrupt in that he gets put forward. The police then contact one of the witnesses in the case and asked that witness to meet him at the end of their road. She lived in a close. She, when she got to the, the end of the road, she worked in, in the offices. The police got her in the back of the car. There was a file in the back of the car. And during the trial, she kept referring to me as Kevin, Kevin, Kevin. And my barrister, John Auburn Williams, says, can you just tell me why you keep referring to Kevin as Kevin? Do you, Mr. Lane as Kevin, do you know him? She said, no. I told, she told the court just what I've told you about the police phoning her up. And when she got in the back of the car, there was my photograph, and they asked her to write a new statement naming me for the, uh, the kidnapping. And that came out, and I got immediate bail. Six months in, and I was on bail then for quite some time. And I ended up going to court uh, and getting the, subsequently getting the guilty. But it shows there was corruption, and the police is end straight away. Um, so there was two wrongs in that I, what I did was wrong, but the police were obviously gunning for me, said, well, we know he did it and we're going to force a case to make sure he goes to prison for this. And, of course, yeah, he got caught out. The chief inspector, he was IDing the, doing the ID parade and the one of the witnesses said, yes, it looks like him, but it's not him. He put, yes, it looks like him, it's him. And at court, the witness said, I didn't say that. So he changed the, changed the statement again. So I was up against it from all ends. And like I say, they were saying to the will, do you think that's bad what he did to you? We can do that and get rid of you. Things like that. So they probably give it to him. And uh, he was, he's had it a hard deal from both ends. When you think the police are there to protect you, give you some counselling, there's no counselling for what's happened. This is his counselling. I wanted this to be like therapy. I, I wanted this, not normally, you know, podcasts, you 
you look, you're laughing and joking at any given opportunity and you sort of make light of heavy situations. But I know I wouldn't want to be making light of that situation. And I, and I, and I, I wanted this to be a, I wanted this to be a, a bit more than a podcast. I wanted it to be, I wanted you to come away feeling lighter and I feel great if I make somebody else feel great. So it, it is a win-win. Plus, it's always nice to see you again. So, uh, yeah. And I want to I wanna end it with just speaking to you again, please, Will. Anything else you want to say, Kev? I want you to imagine this. You get dragged out of a car. The door, car door opens, wallop. You're getting smashed around the head with an iron bar. You're dragged out of there thinking, what's going on here? You're thrown in a motor again in the back of a motor. I get in and I'm bashing you and I'm questioning you and I'm hitting you with this bar and I keep hitting you with it. And I take you to the countryside and I put the car over your wheels. I reverse back over them. I go back over them. That fracture, that done something to his legs, but it did something to the muscles, which uh, like put him into a spasm, which is why he had severe damage to his legs. Couldn't walk properly and things like that for a while. Um, then took him up to the, the canal in Perryvale. Did what I did to him with the can of the CS gas and hit him over the head again. I just thought I'm going to punish you and make you remember what you did and you're going to suffer for it. Imagine that if it happened to you. You think, my God, what kind of impact would that have had on you? If you can think about that, it may stop someone going to do what I did. Uh, I do believe still he should have been kidnapped, but not Will, but the person who did it. Mm. Um, and I don't, I don't think many would disagree with that. I think every, pretty much every woman, might be the odd one or two, would say, no, I still don't believe in it. But if it happened to them, they'd say, I think it deserves some sort of punishment. Mm. And again, that isn't glorifying it or justifying it, but we live in a murky world nowadays, don't we? And uh, some people like the John Waynes. <laughs> <laughs> God bless you. Cheers, Thank Kev. you very much, Liam. See you soon. See you soon. So, gents, this is nice to have you both together at the end. It was nice that we could... Uh, we could sort of find a bit of laughter in amongst that story as well. It's always been my favourite medicine, that's for sure. And uh, not to make light of that, any of that at all, but it's good that you two can have a laugh together and you're spreading some real good stuff in the world. But I just want to ask you, after seeing Kev speak independently to me, and also people will, will, will want to know this, do you believe Kev is remorseful and do you forgive him? If you'd asked me that question about 10 years ago, no. Because in my eyes, um, he'd done wrong. But on the information that he was given at the time, and fast forward into where we're sat today, is that I now know it, he was given the wrong information. And what, he was, what he'd done, he'd done on that information without actual facts until later on in life that he found out it was wrong and I've forgiven for that now and you believe he's remorseful I do yeah yeah I've seen it mm -hmm. so. every time we meet we have a hug and it, believe it or not the power of the hug you say the power of love mm -hmm. the power of a hug he nearly breaks me well we do you know <laughs> so the the podcast we've done before around my house we we spoke about the power of a hug even then and it is uh I recommend it to anyone. Yeah, yeah. I do as well. Like, we're all going to be dead one day. Yeah. Fucking make it count while you're here. Put your arms around someone and just say, I've got you. Yeah. And and mean it. And you consider Kev a friend? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think that because Will's met me, he's now seen the person that did that to him. Actually, gosh, that ain't the beast that 
I've always had in my head. It's what he did was obviously bad, but as a person, we have a laugh, don't we? Will a good laugh for that, and we we chat away and uh, generally chat away. And what was it you like about Kev the most? Oh, he's funny. I'd, I'd, believe it or not, he's got a, a, a bit of a personality about him, which I like. But it's a similar personality to myself. I like a laugh and a joke, and I think you know he's starting to get my little digs and quirks out of him, and he's starting to come through. Does he? Does he bring? The funny bones in you out as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Draws it out of you. Does, yeah. Because I can, you know, hopefully like, take the piss out of him. He does take the piss out of him. <laughs> Once you knock the wall down that's between you, and this is like with most people in the world, you tend to find that you've got more in common than you haven't, and you can you can build on that. Yeah, definitely so. I mean, you two have knocked down a big, big wall. And look what's happened. I mean, you, you look like you, you prefer life with each other, in, in each other's lives than you do without. Well, the way I look at it, we've both lost a lot of things over our year, over our life. You know, I mean, one way or another, like Kevin served his life sentence. I've served, I've, I've technically now come to the end of my life sentence. That's the way I'm feeling. Mm. I'm actually, I feel like, yeah, I'm I'm now starting to open up. I'm hoping over the next coming weeks, months, I'll be able to build that relationship back with my family. But they've got to understand it just takes time and I've just got to adapt to that. But our friendships there now for you know it's a bond there'll be a trauma bond in there somewhere yeah yeah what what happened was was heavy it's not it's not just me it's got ptsd mm. kevin's got ptsd as well i don't know if i have but people if we all says a fair point i've got to have i see some psychologists over the therapists over the, the years i've been released and on two occasions both just said we'd never would have known you'd been to prison if you hadn't told us and you, you conduct yourself where there's no cognitive defects that we can notice that are alarming and such, but we've all got them. Maybe mine are a bit, little bit more suppressed or because of my thought pattern maybe and how I did my time has helped me to come out in the manner that I have in that I didn't have a TV sitting there, click, 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 becoming brain dead. I worked on my case, my brain was f constantly functioning, thinking, turning over. And then I trained really hard, I ate well and I had a drink. So I'm getting rid of the emotions by laughing and joking crying with laughter sometimes, getting rid of the stress or some of the stress as much as I could every day by beasting yourself in prison, because that's what I did. I beasted myself sometimes twice a day and soaking wet with sweat, a puddle on the floor that, you, you know, literally. I think if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have come out the way I am now and been so understanding. I might have been heavily entrenched in my views and not giving a monkey's for someone. Mm. Um, but I do. But all I do, I don't believe, actually, because with me and myself, I've always been a very caring nature, but it doesn't mean that other people that haven't had hard struggles wouldn't come out of it the way I have. Um, so you have to take that into mind that sometimes just because they don't want to take part in it, it's not because they don't really want to, it's because they've been made that way through certain things that have happened in their life. Mm. But what about if you had to see the victim? If your victim wanted to see you, you had to see them through a screen, you was forced to see them as part of your parole process sit there and answer the questions from that victim. I wonder if that'd be powerful enough to really... Hit home. Hit home. Look what you've done. Look what you And that person said, I'm not here to attack you. I just want to meet you and say that I'm the lady or I'm the man or I'm the young boy to what you did this to. Um, and so you can meet me and see that I'm a nice person. Maybe that will have you think twice about doing it to another nice person next time. I'd love to check the stats to see how many people in your position would actually... Go, go through with meeting the person that, that tortured them. 
I wonder how many people would actually do that. I mean, both both of you in your own different ways have been like tremendously brave and honourable. No matter what people, there'll be opposing views in the comments. Of course, there will be. But you've you've got to see both sides of the coin. I mean, you you both certainly are because you're set shoulder to shoulder. It, it might not benefit certain people depending on the crime it, it's committed. But what Kevin's doing, I think, yeah, it, with with them meeting and getting them at an early stage mm. of that process, rather than thirty years later, there's less damage caused then because you can then build up that. You know, I mean, through talking, we've come. I've come to understand what what he did and why he did it. But years ago, I was asking myself, why me? The fact that you've the fact that you've just dropped your guard and been willing to communicate. I mean, communication is key. There, there, there'll be people watching this that this will make them think about their own relationships. It's like, do you know what? If these two men can put their differences aside and actually make sense of what happened and dissect it and forgive each other, there's going to be people in relationships that can forgive each other for fucking putting the remote control in the wrong place. And talk <laughs> instead of talking over a person. Mm. So you sit and you listen mm -hmm. in a sterile area. And you listen instead of like gat guns, gat guns, gat guns, and listen and do it in a controlled manner. But some people can't do that because the emotions take over. So we had a controlled meeting, and it was very sterile with a judge there and other participants that were sitting there through it. Uh, my probation officer was there, or actually I respect a lot. Uh, man's man, real decent man. I have to, and I mean that. And. Um, that environment in the area itself, definitely, we would have been okay anyway if it was in uh, a front room with couches, okay? A warmer area would have been better because it was bloody freezing, weren't it, where we were, Will? Dark and big drapes over the windows. It was a Mormon, used for Mormons a lot of the time. It was really cold, icy, had a dark feeling about it. Instead of somewhere warm and welcoming, face it, cold is, situated, is, uh, is it, you, you associate cold with death, warmth with life. Mm. It's fucking freezing, wasn't it, where we was? Um, but regardless of my perception, mine as a person and Will's, there will be other people that are gridlocked and they did things for whatever reasons and they still believe in them. But as they get older, they might change. When they're younger, they might have a different thought pattern. If you grab them now to when they're older, so you've got to get them now whilst there's still time, or you've got to let them go for a massive period of time before... They mature in a different manner. We all mature differently. We eat different foods as we get older, don't we, normally? Mm. Um, so there is a massive thought pattern change in, in that person. So there's two different times when you could hit these people and they both have an effect. But nonetheless, I do believe that at varying degrees of a person's age, you will have a massive transformation in their thought pattern if they meet their victim, forced or not forced. Yeah, I agree. I agree, and I respect what both of you guys have done. But on that note, I know we've we've mentioned it once already, but I know what it's like to be of you two in a room. So other people have that opportunity as well. Just plug the event where you're both going to be. We have an event on the 23rd of February at Cambridge Country Club in Bourne. It's on the edge of Cambridge, so it isn't you've got to go right into Cambridge for it. It's actually right. It's not even considered Cambridge by some of the locals up there. It's a palatial event. Tickets are flying out. Will will be there. A number of other uh, VIPs will be there. Not just myself. You've got Peter Fury, Matt Legg, Kenny Collins. Kenny Collins will be talking about growing up as a child where there's no roofs on the buildings because he grew up during the war. After the, you know, after the war. And, you know, you just help yourself to 
goods in that building and you become a thief or a thief through necessity because you needed money or you needed food because you were bloody hungry. How people have changed their lives, how they grew up and what made them go that, that way. So I, it'd be a great opportunity for people to come and meet Will and talk to him firsthand, as well as Nick Yaris, who was on, uh, he's been on TV quite a bit, he was on death row. Mm. And he sacked his legal team and said, I've had enough of you lot torturing me after 15 years. And then they found some DNA that exonerated him. Otherwise, if they'd have brought the death sentence forward, as he asked, he'd be dead. Yes. So he'd be there. I've spoken to Nick. Uh, Tommy would be there. Tommy Robinson would be there. So we'd like to be, he's a great journalist and people would like to ask him some questions on manner and he would like to be interviewed. Uh, Sid, Owen, uh, and quite a few more from the cast have banged up. Um, Sophie Wallace, she's in the tribute band that flies around the world for play, plays Fleetwood Mac. Beautiful, but they fly all around the world. So there's a lot of uh, collectively different people going to be there. And I haven't mentioned all of them, okay? So get your backsides down there before all the tickets are sold out because they are selling out. Mm. And it's going to be massive. It's a Q&A, not for a very long hour, hour and a bit. And then there's two restaurants in there. It's all tables. And then there's a drink and... Uh, a party, and I'm brewing 56 litres of hooch for it as well. Kev's hooch is on the menu. Come down and taste some of that. Well, I've, I, I said, didn't I? I wouldn't be surprised if years down the line that they're, they're, on, the, they're on the shelves being sold. It's going to be in Prime, Amazon, and it's going into production. We're looking at that right now. We have to do a lot of legal work in relation to that, how strong it is, the guidelines and the premises where you have it clean. It has to be health and safety checked. So we're actually doing that right now. Lifetime supply for Will? I'll bleed, I couldn't supply it. <laughs> and are you looking forward to the event? I am, actually, yeah. yeah. Not nice nervous, to... you just... No, just nice to meet a few other characters. It was round about at the same time in that, so... Yeah, you should, I'll be, well, you, you will get a lot of love at that event. And uh, and what does the future hold for you, mate? I'm just taking each day as it comes now. Um, you want to re, rekindle the relationships with your family, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, I want to sort of build, try and build that up uh, in, the next, in the coming months and sort of try and get that back on track. You know, it's going to be a bit hard, awkward, because we haven't spoken for many, many years. But uh, that's that's the plan. These podcasts that you're doing, the conversation that we've had today, you have spoke to them. They'll watch yeah. this and they'll, they'll hear what you've had to say and they'll know it's directed at them and that will hopefully make it a lot less awkward. And if you can forgive Kevin, anybody can forgive you. So let's, uh, let's hope that all comes together nicely. And gentlemen, I've loved having you both in. I love a happy ending. It don't get any happier than this. Good health to you both and good luck in the future. Cheers, boys. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. Cheers. Great, isn't it, Will? Yeah. Good <laughs> <laughs> boys. Yeah, mate. There you go. It says aftershave. <laughs> <laughs>